0: Welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen, and if you are joining us as a guest this morning, someone invited you, this was the condition on which they would feed you brunch, they promised that you would meet somebody cute, whatever reason that you were here this morning, this is your first time, we are glad that you were here, and if this is home for you, welcome back, it's good to see you again. We are close to wrapping up a series that we have been in since the beginning of the year called The Science of the Soul. And if you are new or have forgotten what we are talking about, is really the intersection of the best uh, findings of neuroscience and Christian spirituality. And we believe that those two things aren't opposed to each other, but they actually work in partnership and in cooperation with each other. And so a lot of what we have been looking at is the way that God has designed our brains, the way the ways that our brains work, and how we can support the way that we have been designed through Christian spirituality practices to better our lives. And so today, just in time for Valentine's Day, we are going to be talking about how our brains are wired for love. Now, here's the good news. All of our brains are wired for love. The bad news is they're not all wired the same. And so what we're going to be talking about is the different ways that our brains are wired for love and all of the problems and challenges and difficulties that creates in our life and maybe some tools that we can use to begin to understand the ways that the people that we love most and who love us most are wired and so we can begin to build better and healthier relationships. Now what we're going to be using today uh, comes out of some research and study that was done not quite 80 years ago. So there was a psychiatrist and researcher named John Bowlby, and what he decided to do was to try to uncover the origins of why certain kids have behavioral issues. And so he came up with this theory that this started somehow early in these children's lives, and it was related to their relationship with their primary caregiver or caregivers. And so Bowlby does this kind of this experiment that I'm not sure would pass today, but he takes children and their primary caregiver, he puts them in a room, he has the primary caregiver leave the room, and then he monitors what the kid does while the caregiver is gone, and then what happens when the caregiver returns? And seeing the different states of distress that these children would be in, and the ways that they would then reconnect or not with their caregivers as they re-entered the room, started to give Bowlby some clues as to, maybe there were some kind of relational attachment dynamics happening between these children, their caregivers, and then how that impacted those who had behavioral issues. Now, about a decade or so later, another researcher comes along, her name is Mary Ainsworth, and what she connected was Bowlby's original research to how that begins to kind of characterize and color the child's relationship patterns through the rest of the child's life all the way into adulthood. And so the two of them, working together, came to develop this idea of attachment theory. Maybe you've heard of this, and if you have not, this is kind of the basic idea of attachment theory. It describes the lasting emotional bond between caregiver and child... And the impact that this bond has upon this child's future relationships. One more time for those of us like me who are a little slow. The lasting emotional bond between caregiver and child. So what happened early in this child's life, typically by the age of three, between child and caregiver? What was that kind of relationship look like? What did that emotional bond, that physical bond, how was that characterized? And then looking at the impact that this bond has upon this child's future relationships. Now, what they learned is that every person has kind of one of four attachment styles. Now, today we're going to be looking at the three primary attachment styles that account for virtually 95% of us. There's a fourth attachment style that shows up in severe instances of trauma and abuse. And we're not going to cover that this morning, but if you search attachment theory on Google, you can find everything that you want to know about that, if that is interesting or relevant to you. Now, we have one of three attachment styles. Everybody here has one of three or some combination of a dominant and then a secondary, but we all kind of have one of three primary attachment styles. And the obvious question is, well, which one do I have and which one do the people in my life have? And so I thought it would be worth kind of taking a little quiz. This is not diagnostic. Uh, this is not definitive, but I do think this will give us a little bit of insight into what maybe our primary attachment style is. So, if you have a bulletin, which you should, go ahead. If in the section where you haven't made your grocery list. When we, you leave them here, we see what you do when, when while we're preaching. You th- How does he know what's happening? <laughs> because you leave this stuff behind. <laughs> Take your bulletin and you can mark on this. If you have a phone, you can do it as well, but stay on the notes section. Okay, I'm going to give you six questions. For each of the six questions, there is one of three answer choices A, B, and C. It's really simple. I put the question up, and then you write down A, B, or C based on what the best response is. Now, three responses, very kind of vague questions. Do the best you can. Here we go. Question number one on this quiz. You're at a social function, and you see your partner interacting with someone in a way that seems flirtatious. You, A, become jealous and ask your partner to justify themselves, B: don't say anything, but withdraw or act distant for the rest of the night. Or C, take it in stride because you trust your partner. A, B, or C. Now, one thing I failed to mention, this is just kind of guidelines and maybe some useful advice as you're doing this. Uh, if you don't elbow the person next to you, it would probably be helpful for your future relationship. This is one of the ways that we can begin to develop better relationships is not by diagnosing someone else's attachment style. Just your own. This is you in the mirror. Okay, A, B, and C are on question number one. Question two, when you start to feel close to someone or when you used to start to feel close to someone, you, A, start daydreaming about your future wedding, B, put on the brakes to ensure things are not moving too fast, or C, enjoy the feeling and look forward to seeing where the relationship goes, A, B, or C can either be current or historical information A B or C All right question number 3 when it comes to the relationships in your life you A look to others to provide you with a sense of security B have more acquaintances than friends or a romantic partner or C have a variety of relationships in your life A B Or C? All right. Question number four. The best relationships, A, feel like a team, B, feel uncomplicated, C, feel safe. For those of you that want D, all of the above, that is not an answer choice. A, B, or C on this one. A, B, or C? All right, question number five. We're almost there. I sometimes worry that A, my partner will leave me. B, my partner wants too much from me. C, I don't have major worries or anxieties about my relationship. A, B, or C. I sometimes worry blank. All right, last question. For some of you, you're like, oh my gosh, I wish there was 20 more questions. And then others of you are like, all right, wrap this up, buddy. (laughs) Number six, final question. When my partner and I disagree, I A, I feel nervous to say how I feel. I B, I try to say as little as possible. Or C, I feel comfortable expressing my thoughts and opinions. I feel nervous to say how I feel. I try to say as little as possible or I feel comfortable expressing my thoughts and opinions. Okay, now what I would like you to do next is tally up how many of each letter that you have. You may have all of one letter, you may mostly have one letter and a couple of the other, or you may be evenly distributed across the board. Tally it up and try to figure out do you have One that's more predominant than another. Don't forget to carry the one. I see some of y'all doing some hard math over there. I mean, there are some furrowed brows this morning. I know, I know. Okay, here's how your answers likely correspond to one of the three primary attachment styles. If you have mostly A's, you are anxiously attached. You are primarily, that is your primary attachment style, is anxious attachment. If you chose B, you are primarily avoidantly attached. And if you chose C, you are primarily securely attached. Anxious, avoidant, or secure. Now, let's spend a little bit of time talking about each of these three attachment styles So that this quiz actually is useful for you other than just telling you something random. For those of you who are anxiously attached, um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. That might make you anxious. But this is characterized by a fear of rejection, a fear of abandonment. You are dependent upon your partner for validation and emotional regulation. You perhaps struggle with codependent tendencies Now this attachment style develops from your primary caregivers being inconsistent with their uh, care and support and emotional regulation of you. Sometimes your parents were there for you emotionally, sometimes your parents were not available because they were distracted or preoccupied with something. This is how this begins to develop because you weren't able to consistently depend on your primary caregivers for emotional support. Now, time out. This is not indictments on parents. Okay? I need to caveat that for a couple reasons. One is sitting in the second row. But the other reason this is not an indictment on parents is because uh, most parents have inherited an attachment style from their parents. And on and on and on it goes. This is not um, malicious actions done by parents with the exception of sometimes trauma and abuse, which we're not talking about this morning. Those are real things. But this is what we inherently do, sometimes without our awareness of it. This is not because parents don't love you or your parents didn't love you. We likely, most of us have grown up in homes where our parents' love for us was available and obvious, but sometimes it wasn't as consistent as perhaps we needed in the moment to develop secure attachments. Okay, everybody on the same page? I don't need phone calls when you leave the parking lot. It's like, mom, you won't believe what I learned in church today. You did a bad job. That won't help your relationships. Okay, Back to anxious attachment. Now, if you have anxious attachment style, your parents probably kind of vacillated between coddling you and being overly emotionally supportive and pulling back totally and being preoccupied, whether it was with their emotions or other things that were happening. Uh, likely, your parents were or your primary caregiver was easily overwhelmed. Uh, sometimes drew you in and then would push you away. There was not consistency in kind of the emotional attunement between you and your primary caregiver. Now, how this manifests in your life. Perhaps clingy tendencies. You might be highly sensitive to criticism, whether it's real or perceived criticism. Uh, You long for, seek out, and work to gain approval from other people. You might struggle with jealous tendencies because there's not enough care and attention available in the world, and so if somebody else is getting it from the person that you are in a relationship with, that's a threat to you, okay? some You might struggle and have difficulty being alone. You might struggle with low self-esteem, feeling unworthy of love, be particularly sensitive to rejection, and you might have certain fears of abandonment. That is if you struggle um, in this area. Anxiously attached, roughly 20, 25% of the population is what researchers and psychiatrists say, 25% of us. OK, avoidant attachment. If you chose B, that was your predominant answer. This is defined by kind of difficulty building long-term relationships with other due to an inability to actually kind of get close. You like to keep people at arm's distance. That feels like the safest place to you. Uh, You kind of subscribe to the idea. Then you disagree that no man is an island. You kind of like that idea. You're like, it'd be nice to be an island, to kind of have my distance from other people. Now, this happens in childhood. This is developed when you might have uh, emotionally distant parents. Now, this is not a lack of care, but it might be a preoccupation with things that your parents prioritized over their emotional attunement with you and or relationships. So if you grew up in a very strict household where um, your performance in school or athletics or the cleanliness of the house or kind of being polite and having a good reputation in the world, if those things were most important and the highest value in your household over relationships or your parents' relationship with you, this is kind of where some of this comes from. What you end up starting to recognize is that relationships don't always feel safe because you find difficulty getting what you need in them. And so the safest way for you to operate in the world, if you are avoidantly attached, is at a distance. You like people, just arm's length away. And so you don't have a lot of really close relationships. People might look at you and say that uh, you're kind of, distant and detached, that you struggle and are uncomfortable expressing your feelings. You might have a hard time trusting people or being dismissive of others. You might, if you're kind of to the extreme, you might start to feel threatened as people get too close. You might have this sense of panic as people kind of get closer and closer to you in a relationship. Maybe your relationships are characterized by a pattern of you engage. It starts to get serious and you break it off and you move on. This is where some of this comes from if you are avoidantly attached you would be characterized as somebody that has commitment issues now for some of you you're like i feel like all of this applies to me and that can be the case because sometimes we have had different caregivers who have different attachment styles who impact us and so you might kind of oscillate and vacillate between different styles that might be the case Now, avoidantly attached people, another 20-ish percent, 25 percent of the population. Now, this is painting broad strokes, but more often than not, psychiatrists say that typically women fall into the more anxiously attached and men fall into the more avoidantly attached. It's not always the case, but when you paint broad strokes and you see the general patterns and trends, this seems to be what's happening. And then the last category, which is estimates 40 to 50% of the population, are those who are securely attached. Now, this, these are the people who, it's not that they're perfect, it's not that they're better than the other attachment styles, but what they learned growing up was that it was safe to trust relationships, that you could be in relationship with other people, that you could get your needs met, and that you could ask for what you need, and this would be a safe space. You had consistency from your primary caregivers with their emotional attunement to you, their relational kind of prioritization of you and the relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, everything was built around you and the child, but what it means is your parents knew how to show up for you. They knew how to ask you what you needed, and they knew how to meet your needs in a consistent way that you begin to be able to trust. And because that's what happened in home, you entered the world assuming that all relationships should work this way. And what they've noticed is that people in secure relationships or secure attachment styles typically have less tolerance for uh, anxious and avoidant attachment styles, which are categorized as insecure attachment. And so if you're in a secure attachment style, those are how your primary relationships operate, you are less typically less tolerant of insecure attachment styles. Now, this is helpful for a couple of reasons. One, as you begin to recognize which attachment style you have and the people closest to you have, it starts to give you clues and indications about how you should engage with other people. It's information that we can use to understand how our brains are wired and what we need out of our relationships. For example, if you have someone who is anxiously attached, In a committed relationship with someone who is avoidantly attached, let me just kind of paint a picture of how this dynamic might go, and you tell me if you know anyone who this sounds like. So, anxiously attached person in a relationship with avoidantly attached, anxiously attached is home. Avoidantly attached comes home from a long day at work. Anxiously attached has spent the day thinking about all of the things that they can do to make sure that the home is ready for their significant other because that's a way that they can show their care and concern for their loved one. Avoidantly attached comes home, probably fails to recognize all the work that the anxiously attached has done to set up the home to be ready to receive the avoidantly attached. Avoidantly attached goes and sits down on the couch, goes into the office, checks out in some other way because they don't feel the need for relational connection in that moment. Anxiously attached has been longing for relational connection all day. And so it's almost like this opportunity to pounce on the person when they walk in the door because they have been longing for this opportunity to connect relationally. The anxiously attached fights their feelings, gives into the urge and goes and enters into the protected space of the avoidantly attached, much to the frustration of the avoidantly attached person. It's like, what do you want? That hurts the feelings of the anxiously attached. They start to feel and take on the victim role and say, well, I was just trying to check in and see what you needed. And the other one's like, I'm fine. I don't need anything from you. I need you just to leave me alone. And then the anxiously attached gets hurt and starts to retreat a little bit and then gets frustrated and maybe comes back with another barb with the avoidantly attached. And then you go into this wash cycle around and around and around you go because neither one of them recognizes what the other one needs and how to give it back to the other person. I'm just spitballing, right? Just to guess at how some of this stuff works. Now, when you have a dynamic with the securely attached and one of the other insecure styles, it doesn't always go that way. But sometimes you might see these same patterns in your relationship and wondering, what is going on with the other person? Why are they always this way? Why don't they understand what I need? Why do they seem to be so difficult or challenging? Why does there seem to be this disconnection in my relationships? It's because we're all wired for love differently. And so the goal is to begin to develop tools to, one, recognize the attachment style of the people in your life. And two, begin to communicate and operate with them based on their attachment style, which lowers their threat and stress levels. Now, this is kind of how all of this stuff stacks up in our brains over the last several weeks. People with primarily secure attachment style have more fully integrated brains than people with insecure attachment styles. Remember the hand model of the brain that we've done the last couple of weeks? Now, what happens when you're in a primarily insecure attachment style is the likelihood that your lid flips in your relationships is higher than when you're in securely attached relationships. So you're more prone for your lid to flip, you lose contact with the prefrontal cortex, and your ability to regulate words, thoughts, actions, interact in a thoughtful, reasonable way, disengages from the rest of your body, and you move into flight or fight response. Which is why you often see couples who are in insecurely attached relationships and dynamics operating like this, both with flipped lids never understanding why the other person can't give them what they need and why what they're giving doesn't meet the needs of the other person. And around and around and around we go. So, the way that you begin to move towards secure attachments, both in your own life and in your relationships, is starting to use some of the tools that we have talked about over the last several weeks. All of these things stack up upon each other. One of the ways that you can begin to move towards this is to begin to recognize the other style of the person you're in relationship with, but also paying attention to your style. Now, here's where this matters for us, not just relationally, but spiritually. If we have some default wiring from our primary caregivers about how relationships work or don't work, what is the likelihood that we overlay that onto how our relationship with God works? If you're avoidantly attached and relationships are at a distance and you're better off alone, how likely are you to develop a prayer habit where you devote specific and intentional time pouring out your heart and your thoughts and your emotions to God and trusting that God actually cares to listen and to meet your needs? It's gonna be low because that's not how any of the other relationships in your life work. And if you were anxiously attached, you probably long for God's presence in your life, but you likely have low self-esteem or are highly critical of yourself and all of the reasons why God may not actually love you or is going to be distant from you. In both instances, there is kind of dysfunction in the way that we relate to God. And what I find so interesting about Scripture, or maybe beautiful is the better word, is that long before we had any of these, of these ideas... Findings or language around attachment style, we have one consistent theme throughout Scripture. The two most repeated passages or phrases in all of Scripture, do not be afraid, I am with you. Hundreds of times, Old Testament, New Testament, do not be afraid, I am with you. That is the message of secure attachment. And that is the unheard message that impacts all of the insecure attachments. We're not sure if God is with us or if God's coming back. This is what you see over and over again in scripture. In the Psalms, Psalmists writing out, God, where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? This is kind of this, you know, basic longing of our hearts is to be in secure relationship with our primary caregivers and and with God this is why I think we see this reiterated over and over again in scripture to reassure us of the thing that we are most fearful of the presence of God in our life I mean this is the beauty of the incarnation that God not just looks down and smiles upon us from a distance But that God took on flesh, became human, lived and walked among us to demonstrate God's love for us. There's this beautiful passage in the letter of 1 John that the author writes that I just want to take a second to point out. Just think about the language and how it connects to our longings, our fears for secure attachment. Beloved. Let us love one another because love is from God. The way that we interact with our other relationships in our adult lives based on our relationship with our primary caregiver. Let's love one another, why? Because we've been loved well by God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. God's love was revealed among us in this way. How do we know that God loves us? How can we trust and be sure because God stepped into humanity and God stepped into history and God sent his only son into the world that we would have life through him. In this is love. In this demonstration of Jesus Christ, we see evidence of God's love for us. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to restore the relational disconnection that we have, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to remove the blockage that separates us from being in relationship with God. Beloved, since God loved us so much, because we can trust in the way that God loves us, we also ought to love one another. It should impact our relationships with the people in our lives, because we can trust in our relationship with God and his love for us. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then he ends with this. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And this is at the core of attachment theory. When the parent leaves the room, what happens inside of the child? fear, uncertainty, doubt, disbelief about whether or not the parent will return. As kids, you know, before kids really start to develop all of kind of their mental faculties, there's this idea of object permanence. It's this idea, if you can't see it, it ceases to exist, which triggers all of the fear responses inside children, which is why that experiment worked. When the kids can no longer see the parent, they do not have certainty that the parent will return. And so all of this fear enters the child. And so Paul, not knowing any of John Bowlby's experiments or research, reminds us that there's no fear in love. And in fact, God's perfect love casts it all out. And I think that there are tools that we can use to begin to develop a more perfect love in our relationships. Whether you are on the extreme end of avoidant attachment or anxious attachment or moving towards secure attachment, the good news of this is not that your attachment style is a life sentence, but it can change because our brains have neuroplasticity. They can be rewired. They can form and adapt and mold and grow. And you can build more secure attachments in your relationships, and there are a couple tools that will help us. And because we're at the end of the sermon, just to kind of revive interest, and because it's Super Bowl Sunday, I just kind of did uh, I put them in the context of a uh, football analogy. So for some of you, you, roll your eyes, and for some of you, this will be the first sermon you ever heard. So <laughs> here we go. Here are the keys to creating secure attachments. First, got to study the playbook. You have to understand you and your significant others or significant relationships, attachment styles. Not to diagnose them, but to understand them. you got to study the playbook if you want to step on the field. Understand your attachment style and the attachment styles of the people in your life. Number two, huddle up. This is when you and your relationship create protected space to talk about your relationship. It can be in the moment of a situation. It can be before you enter that social environment. It can be once a week. It can be before bed. You can develop rituals and habits that create space for you and your significant other to talk about, to work on the stuff between y'all. This is space though. When players huddle, they put their arms around each other so that nobody else can get in the huddle. This huddle is for you and your significant other, not you, your significant other, and your mother-in-law, or your mom, or somebody else who has all sorts of ideas on what your relationship needs. Protected space for you in that relationship to huddle up, to talk about what's going on. The next, throw penalty flags. This is when you say, ouch, time out, that hurt. One of the leading predictors of divorce is contempt and resentment. That comes from unexpressed and unacknowledged hurts and feelings. So how do you ensure that you don't have unacknowledged and unexpressed hurts and feelings that fester and build up into contempt and resentment? Throw the penalty flag. Game play stops and you have a conversation whether it's in the moment or in a later huddle to talk about, hey, I just need to let you know about something that happened. When you did this, I felt this, I would like you to blank. The reason that pattern works is because it helps inform the other partner what's going on in you, what you need. This is part of how you can build out a better and more thorough playbook. Throw the penalty flag. And then the last, touchdown celebrations. When you get it right in your relationships, celebrate. When you have a successful huddle, celebrate. Acknowledge. Name it. When there's been hurt that's been created and you meet together to address the hurt and then repair, celebrate that victory. You can do the gritty, whatever you want to do. I'm not going to do it for you this morning, even though I looked up a video to see how to do it just in case I decided I want to do it. (laughs) This is the stuff that goes through my mind when when I write these sermons. Anyway, that's a whole different sermon. Okay, but celebrate your touchdowns. That's the point. Celebrate your touchdowns. Celebrate the good things that are happening in your relationship. Hey, I know that that environment was really difficult for you to enter into. And so I really appreciate how you took one for the team and you went with me to that party. It feels really nice to have you on my arm. That makes me feel more secure. Thank you for doing that. Or thank you for keeping me close throughout the party. You know how much I hate these things. And when you drag me to them, it feels really nice to know that you're not going to leave me and I'm going to be abandoned in this social scene where I feel like I'm drifting off at sea. When you do that, celebrate when the other partner responds to what it is that you've requested. Celebrate your touchdowns. Playbook, huddles, penalty flags, and touchdown celebrations. Ladies, my guess is you'll be able to talk about this sermon with your husband like four days from now because they're going to at least remember some of this stuff. But as we use these things, as we use these things, it begins to remove fear and allows us to experience a more perfect love with each other and with God. And that's the goal. That's the goal. We are capable of this. God has wired our brains for love. And when we use these tools... We can love in a more secure way. Let me pray for our time together this morning, and we'll bring the band up. God, thank you for our time. Thank you for the ways that you have wired us for love, to be in relationship with you and to be in relationship with each other. God, help us to begin to trust you and allow that trust to inform our other relationships. God, help us to love more perfectly. It is in your name we pray. Amen.